it's good to be with you albeit by video and we're going to continue our series in uh, the prophet Isaiah looking at Isaiah which Ray recommenced last week let's pray before we go any further uh, loving heavenly father we ask that you would help us in the words of your servant Isaiah to be amongst those who tremble at your word so um, your ways are higher than our ways uh, we can't fully fathom what it is that you're doing so we pray that you would help us to come expectantly and reverently this morning uh, we pray that you would help us to be among those who truly fear your name uh, and who delight in your steadfast love uh, and find refuge in only in your salvation. So teach us this morning, we pray, from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read uh, Isaiah 56, starting at verse seven, uh, verse 9, and we're going to go uh, into chapter 57 down to the end of verse 13. All you beasts of the field... Come to devour, all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, they are all without knowledge, they are all silent dogs, they cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite, they never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding, they have turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say. Let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit, you who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering, you have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it, you have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed, you have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say, it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear, so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Well, you might be thinking we've heard all that before, and you'd be right. Isaiah has to say the same kinds of things again and again. 
uh, and we'll talk about that a bit more in a moment, but right at the very beginning, when we started looking at Isaiah a, a couple of years ago, uh, I took an idea that I got from the Australian scholar Bill Dumbrell that Isaiah oscillates between a picture of God's judgment and a picture of his mercy. It's like a pendulum swinging. And so right the way through the book of Isaiah, you'll see expressions of God's wrath, his righteous anger at the disobedience of his people to whom he's given so much. He saved them uh, out of Egypt. He brought them into the promised land, gave them a good law to live by, and yet they kept on being enticed by the worship of the idols of the nations around about them. And God said, if you do that, you'll lose the land. And so we get warnings and then we get promises. So judgment and salvation all the way through Isaiah. And this is another judgment passage. Uh, Why does Isaiah repeat himself? Well, it's because humans repeat themselves. Uh, Humans keep going back to the same thing. Have you heard the old saying, a history repeats itself? Uh, I'm sure you have. But there was an English uh, poet, a Christian poet by the name of Steve Steve Turner, who uh, wrote quite a number of books of poetry and other things in the 70s and 80s. Uh, He's probably still going, but uh, this is one from the late 1970s, and it's called History Lesson. And so the poem goes, History Lesson. History repeats itself, has to, no one listens. Proverbs 26 verse 11 says, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Humans are like dogs eating their own chunder. Uh, We just keep doing the same things over and over. And even God's people are tempted to return to sins that have been paid for by the Lord Jesus. And yet we find ourselves returning to them again and again. Malcolm Muggeridge was uh, a very well-known English media personality. Uh, He'd been a journalist, he'd been a foreign correspondent, he had quite a reputation in the English media, and he very famously became uh, a Christian convert. He converted to the Lord Jesus Christ after years of opposing the message of the gospel and being a a very vocal uh, atheist and and, uh, socialist. And he had a public conversion to Christianity which changed his whole life and caused him to, well, he was always asked on to British chat shows and things like that, and often they'd put him up as an object of derision, they'd mock him, but he was a very, very intelligent man. Well, he, one of his jobs was he became the rector of the Edinburgh University, and as I understand it, the rector uh, had to represent the student body to the administration of the university, and he was bound to sort of say what the, the uni students wanted him to say to an extent. Well, he was giving the commencement address at the, uh, the beginning of the academic year of 1968. And uh, it was being delivered in St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. Now, not long before, the student body had... Uh, had there'd been a, an article in the student newspaper talking about the use of LSD, the psychedelic drug, and, and, and recommending it, and talking about how it in, would enhance your humanity and your creativity... Uh, Muggeridge took exception to that. But then there was an appeal from the student body that through student health services, the contraceptive pill be made available and available free to everybody who wanted it. Well, that was too much for Muggeridge. And so he, the students had, um, had spoken of in this article that was in the, the, the magazine, the university magazine of you know, wanting to express themselves and so on. And uh, this was at the time of the Vietnam War. So Muggeridge, in his commencement speech, spoke of the mood of rebelliousness and he said he understood that they wanted to refuse to accept the ways and values of their run-down and spiritually impoverished way of life. He meant contemporary Scottish society. And then he went on. He said, Yet how infinitely sad 
that the form of your insubordination takes should be a demand for pot and pills. He meant birth control pills, so drugs and birth control pills. He says, we await the works of art, the high spirit adventuring into new fields of perception and understanding. And what do we get? The resort of any old slobbering debauchee the world over, dope and bed. I have therefore asked the principal to accept my resignation. So, dear Edinburgh students, this is likely to be the last time I address you, and this is what I want to say, and I really don't care whether it means anything to you or not. Whatever life is or is not about, it is not to be expressed in terms of drug stupefaction and casual sexual relations. However else we venture into the unknown, it is not, I assure you, on the plastic wings of Playboy or psychedelic fancies. Muggeridge, it's pretty stern words, usually commencement addresses something like believe in yourselves or chase your dreams or something like that. He um, gave them something really to think about, I think. But he was pilloried in the press for being old hat and out of date and all those sorts of things. But I think he's onto something here. What he's looking to, he's promoting a way of life which is more rigorous and which is more in tune with what life actually requires rather than giving into fantasy land and thinking that life is all about sensual indulgence, whether it's sexual or in the realm of drug taking. He says, no, life's sterner than that and it requires a sterner, um, more disciplined response. He says, I can't go along with this any longer. I can't go along with this charade. Well, that's what Isaiah's addressing. He's, he's addressing this persistent tendency of humans to want to find pleasure in things that dishonour God. Life is sterner than that, but we'll find that going God's way always works for the best. Now, Ray spoke last week and gave a bit of an outline of the book of Isaiah, and I'll do it again because it's important to get this. Isaiah is a big book and it's hard to contain it all. But Isaiah, we, we sometimes say that the prophets are like, uh, we, we need to understand the prophets like looking at a, a series of mountain ranges from a distance. So as I drive home from Mafra heading towards Tanambra on a sunny day, I can look to the right, I can look to the north, and I can see successive ranges of mountains. And they look like curtains, really, because they're just different shades of blue. And so I can see some are obviously near because they're in the front, but then there's one behind and then there's one behind that. And I can't tell from that distance what space there is in between those different mountain ranges. I can see them, but I can't see the distance. Prophets speak about things that are happening in their generation. They look ahead to things that will happen at some point in the future, and they look ahead to the third mountain range of the end of all things, and Isaiah does that. He's prophesying at a time when the people of Jerusalem are very decadent, they've gone against God's word uh, and they are threatened with the same punishment as the northern tribes of Israel, which is exile. So the northern tribes have already been defeated by the Assyrian army, but Isaiah warns them it won't be the Assyrians, it will be the Babylonians who take you, Judah, Jerusalem, into exile. And so the first 39 chapters are written at the time of the Assyrian threat and also with the idea of Babylon coming to get them. What we find is that in chapter 1 verse 21, Jerusalem was once a faithful city, but it's now become a whore, like a prostitute. In other words, it's completely unfaithful. But then in chapter 1 verse 27, we get a vision of a coming day when Jerusalem will once again be a faithful city. And so the question is, how will the unfaithful city become the faithful city? 
And we find an answer in the second section of the book, Isaiah 40 to 55. Now, Isaiah 40 to 55, Isaiah wrote it in his day, but he wrote it for those people who were returning from Babylon after their 70 years of captivity. So he was looking into the future from his generation and saying, this is what you're going to need to know when you come back to Jerusalem after the exile, which is forecast. He talks about Israel being the servant of Yahweh. Israel should have been serving God. Uh, That's what they were raised up to do. But he also says that the return from exile is going to be performed by another servant. So in chapter 45, that servant is named. His name is Cyrus, who's the king of Persia. So Persia, as an empire, overtook the Babylonians. And it was the Persian emperor Cyrus who orchestrated the return of the Jews back to Jerusalem. So... Israel is God's servant, Cyrus is God's servant, but then we also read about another servant. And he saves God's people by laying down his life for them. And of course, we read that in Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, This is the servant of Yahweh. And so in verse 11 of chapter 53, we read that my servant will make many to be accounted righteous and he will bear their iniquities. Now, as Christians, it's very obvious that the New Testament identifies that servant as Jesus. But in Isaiah's day, they didn't know that. They were waiting for Yahweh to send a servant who would do that, who would pay with his life for the sins of others and establish God's people as righteous and faithful once again. Well, the third part of Isaiah, chapters 55 to 56 to 66, Isaiah is looking ahead to the, to the time after the return of exile after the ministry of the servant and we we read these words that nothing's changed history's repeating itself the same old same old problems keep on emerging now the book of isaiah ends with a new creation and so this whole section here in chapter 56 to 66 tells us that god's people need to be patient we need to wait for god to complete his work there's an old song we used to sing when i was a kid god is working his purposes out God is patient. His people need to be patient and leave the timing of his ultimate salvation to him. And that's at heart what the message of these last 11 chapters of Isaiah is about. So let's turn to Isaiah 56, 9 to 12. We'll see that there's two kinds of people. There's people who live self-indulgent lives. There's people who live wholeheartedly for Yahweh, the righteous in the land. And so we read there about the beasts of the field coming to devour. It's a call for them. All you beasts, come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. Now, the beasts that are referred to there, it's a symbol. Back in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, God promised that when his people came into the land, uh, they would be protected from wild beasts. Uh, Back in those days, they didn't have the the protections that we often do today uh, from the wild beasts of the land, lions, wolves, the rest, bears. Uh, and so they were, they were things of terror. Yahweh said, if you follow my laws, you'll be protected from those beasts. If you disobey my laws, read it in Leviticus 26, one of the covenant curses was, the beasts will devour you. And so Isaiah is using that as a, a figure for the invaders who will come and, and take over his people again. He says, all of the, all the all you beasts of the field come to devour you, beasts in the forest. But notice this in verse 10, the watchmen are blind. The watchmen, that's another way of saying the prophets, they should have been keeping an eye out for the wild beasts, but they're not. What are they doing? Well, they're without knowledge. They're all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. 
So they're just snoozing. They're asleep on, the, on their watch. They're derelict in their duty. Now, verse 11, we read more about them. How he uses a different image now. So they're watchmen, they're blind watchmen. But he says, the dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But these dogs are actually the shepherds. They're ravenous dogs. Dogs weren't pets in those days. They, any, any reference to dogs in the Bible is to a, an animal that ravages around the, uh, the rubbish tips of the day. They're, they're scavengers. Uh, they weren't cute and cuddly like your average cavoodle these days. Uh, these dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. They're shepherds who have no understanding. So the watchmen are without knowledge. The shepherds have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way, each to his own gain. They were living for themselves. So verse 12 sums it up. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, a great beyond measure. These people are completely insensible to the watching Yahweh, the one who would protect his people, but the one who will give them over to their own license and self-indulgence. These are heedless, debauched people. They're completely insensible to the seriousness of the times that they're living in. Now, the Bible never condemns the use of alcohol, but it does condemn drunkenness. And so these people are symbols of rebellion against God, people who simply misunderstand how serious life is. Life is too serious to allow yourself to get drunk. Um, drunkenness means you're prayerless. And we should always be in a position where we in a condition where we can pray. Proverbs 20 verse 1 sums it up. Wine is a mocker, strong drinker, brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Um, and so it's a, a symbol of the, the, the decline, the moral decay of God's people at the time that their leaders were indulgent when it came to food and strong drink. Now, these are the living embodiment, these people of Psalm 14, verse 1, which says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. These people are behaving. They say they believe in God, but their behaviour contradicts it. They behave as if there's no God. Now, these wicked leaders, we read on into chapter 57, they're a threat to the righteous. The fact that they're insensible watchmen, that they're lazy shepherds, lazy self-indulgent shepherds. When God's people fail and serve, when God leaders serve themselves rather than God and his people, it's always a bad situation. So 57 verses 1 to 2 shows us the threat to the righteous. The righteous man perishes. So their negligence leads to righteous people dying. No one lays it to heart. In other words, these leaders don't even care. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. Now that word devout there is the, uh, the lovely Hebrew word hesed, uh, which is a word we've spoken of before. It's a word so rich which you can't contain it in just one English word. So it's variously translated God's steadfast love or his unfailing love or his tender mercy. All of those are good translations. Um, it's the, the word that's used in Psalm 23, 6, goodness and mercy, let goodness and mercy follow me. Um, these are people of goodness and mercy. These are people whose lives echo the love of Yahweh. And yet they're taken away and no one cares and no one understands. They're the victims of violence. So the wealthy aren't experiencing the natural consequences of their own sin, but others are. Now the wealthy, well, the, the leaders will experience it in time as we'll see. But the death of the righteous here, what the... 
wicked leaders don't understand is that the righteous then enter into peace in verse 2. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. In other words, God takes them to be with him, uh, which is not something that the, the wicked will enjoy. So there's a promise there. There's that, that, that note of, of brightness, of promise. There's judgment, but there's mercy all the way through the book of Isaiah. And here's another small example of it. If you are surrounded by wickedness, if you're dismayed by the condition of the world, then take heart. You may not escape the physical consequences of being opposed for trusting Jesus. It, it may cause distress, but ultimately your, your future is secure. You will enter into peace because you've walked in your uprightness. So press on. Now, chapter 57, verses 3 to 10, there's this persistent threat of debauchery, the debauchery of the kind that Malcolm Muggeridge spoke about in 1968 in Edinburgh. And so verse 3 says, "You, But you, draw near, sons of the sorcerers, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Now that's a stunning denouncement of, of the Jews of the time. They were proud of being descended from Abraham and Sarah, the great patriarchs. They were proud of being in that line of descent, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through. But no, Isaiah says, no, you're sons of the sorceress. You're offspring of the adulterer. He says, you're not the offspring of righteous people. You are the living embodiment of, of being the offspring of people who live in a way that's contrary to the commands of God. So he presses on in verse, for whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? People have been sticking out their tongues as a sign of mockery for a very long time, and in those days it wasn't just children. This was a sign of, it was an insult. And Yahweh, Isaiah says to them, you're actually sticking your tongue out at God, which is a very foolish transaction. So he goes on again and he repeats the denunciation, are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? So they're not worshippers, they're mockers. Now mocking's easy. Um, it's very, very easy. It's easy, especially in a group. We've probably all witnessed it, perhaps some of us have experienced it, being mocked by people where there's strength in numbers. It's very rare to find a bully operating solo, just one against another, very, very rare. I used to see that as a teacher. Very, very rare that a bully will do one-on-one. They usually do it in front of an audience to garner some level of acclaim for themselves, just how clever and how tough they are, picking on the defenceless, but they always do it with an audience, always. Well, these people are mockers. Whom are you mocking? Very easy to mock and disdain. But he goes on in verse 5. You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of rocks. In other words, you're in a precarious position. Notice it's a question. Who are you mocking, you adulterers? So what this describes is a willful sharing in idolatrous worship. Now, God's people were warned of this centuries before, millennia before, when they came into the promised land. Don't go after the idols of the nations around about you. The idols of the nations around about were connected with uh, very sensual worship practices. So the worship of Baal involved sex with temple prostitutes. Now, I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. You will never be tempted to do something you don't want to do. Temptation always offers the prospect of pleasure. We could look and say, well, why did they keep falling for it for the same reason we do? History repeats itself because these temptations are real and they are ever-present. 
we're surrounded by the temptation of sexual immorality in our own generation. It's been that way since the dawn of time. And so these people turning their back on God are pursuing short-term pleasure, but by doing it, they're putting themselves at risk of God's wrath. But the worship of the gods of the nations around about was sensually pleasing and therefore a constant temptation, which is why Isaiah and all the other prophets have to keep coming back to the same thing over and over again. And so he goes on in verse 7, On a high and lofty mountain you have set up your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifices. Now that's the third bed we read of in this reading. Um, We've got the watchmen who take to their beds because they're just snoozing all the time, sleeping on the watch. We've got the bed of the righteous that they rest comfortably in because they're righteous and walk in their uprightness. But now we've got this big bed of adultery. So three beds. And I guess the challenge is, which one do you want? The the bed of idleness, the bed of sexual immorality, or the bed of the righteous? And so behind verse verse 8, behind the door and the doorpost, you've set up your memorial. For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. Um, they've made a covenant for themselves. God had made a covenant with his people. They're making a covenant with idolatrous. Now, that reference to the door and the doorpost is a clear echo of uh, Deuteronomy 6 and 11, where God said to them, to remind yourselves of my law, write it on the doorposts of your house. So in other words, whenever you look at it, you'll say, that's right, that's God's law for me. But now they're doing the very reverse of that. They're, they're brazenly advertising their sexual immorality, it seems, by, by referring... Um, they, they've got signs of it in their houses. They don't care. Now, verse 10 says, You are wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. So in other words, it took a fair bit of effort to indulge these sensual pleasures. But it never stopped them. It never caused them to stop and think, oh, perhaps we shouldn't be doing this. No, they found strength somehow and continued to pursue what God's law had said they must not. And so the weariness that their sin caused didn't actually stop them. Now, that's almost a reverse of Isaiah 40, verses 30 to 31, where we read that even youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Yahweh's people will be strengthened in their patient waiting for him to act when he gives them that strength himself. These people find the strength from within themselves to endure, to persevere in wickedness. And that's an abomination. So verses 57 uh, chapter 57, 11 to 13, the first part of verse 13, we see the threat of misplaced fear. There's threats all the way through this. There's the threat of wicked leadership. There's the threat to the righteous that comes from that wicked leadership. There's the persistent threat of debauchery, and now we get the threat of misplaced fear. So in verse 11, Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you do not fear me? So these are foolish people. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we're told in the Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, they're reverencing other gods. Their fear is for other gods. Their reverence is for the idols. They don't remember. What that means is they've forgotten all the things that Yahweh has done for them in the past, the exodus, 
providing the promised land, providing a law to live by. They've forgotten all those things. Those should have been passed on parent to child, parent to child, all the way down, uh, but they weren't. And so people have forgotten what Yahweh has done. And they make the mistake of thinking the fact that God is not acting immediately means that he stopped caring. That's what it means to hold his peace. He's, he's remaining silent, but it doesn't mean he's indifferent. They should have known that I, Exodus 34, when Moses had his meeting with Yahweh, uh, Yahweh passed before Moses and, and told him that he was, he was a patient God, the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, keeping steadfast love, keeping hesed for thousands, forgiving iniquity. God longs to forgive, but his people keep on keeping on in their, their sin and rebellion. And so Yahweh says, I'll de- I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they'll not profit you. And the reason for that is because they have no righteousness. They have no good deeds. Uh, so he says, I'm going to tell you about them, but on the day when I call you to account... When my patience is exhausted, you'll find that the things that you're pursuing, the object of your fear is groundless. When you cry out, verse 13, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. A breath will take them away. The idols that they worship, no matter how beautiful, how heavy they are with the gold that's on them, uh, those idols will turn out to be blown away as though by a wind. Idols can't help in the day of God's wrath. So God's going to hand them over to the natural consequences of their decisions and of the alliances that they're making. Um, he says as much as, if you want to worship idols, let them help you. It's foolish, isn't it? But the reading ends with a note of promise again. We've had the threat and now we've got the, the merciful promise. And so the second half of verse 13, But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So we've got this choice of two ways. You've got the way of rebelling against God, of seeking sensual pleasure, of seeking the worship of other gods, of of fearing other gods and going along with the mocking crowd. Or you've got the way of patient endurance, the hard way, the narrow way of taking refuge in Yahweh and living the righteous life. And there's this wonderful promise, he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Um, refuge is a beautiful word Uh, whenever I think of refuge I think of refuge cove at Wilson's Promontory Uh, when you get out of Wilson's Promontory you get out of refuge cove you can look back on it you see this beautiful wine glass shaped bay and it must have been a beautiful place to come into out of the the storms and gales of Bash Strait so you can see yachts in there and it's calm and it's peaceful it's refuge cove God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble Psalm 46 verse 1 says Uh, Those who come to God and find their refuge, their security, their safety and their salvation in him alone have a glorious future. Whereas those who rebel against him mistake his patience and his kindness for indifference. But they're going to meet him full of wrath, full of righteous wrath. Well, Isaiah chapter 3 verse 10, one of my very favourite verses in the whole Bible, uh, says, Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. If you're surrounded by mockers, if you ever wonder, is God going to put a stop to all this rampant wickedness, the nonsense that we seem to be surrounded by each day, remember that the call of God to you is to be patient. 
Uh, our times are in his hands. And so we let the time, we leave the timing to God. Tell the righteous it shall be well with them. And so we've got to press on, we've got to persevere because we know God's promises. We know that he has sent the servant to pay with his blood for our iniquity. We know that he's promised a glorious future, but it's for those who day by day take refuge in him. If we're ever tempted to join that great rush of people who fall away, who simply give up because it's too hard, we're putting ourselves at risk of his wrath. We need to persevere. Because you see, the temptation to indulgent self-seeking pleasure is always present. It's just around us the whole time. Now Jesus said that the Christian way is hard. He says in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It's hard, but it's good. There's no better way. I've been encouraged a lot just lately. I've had uh, some lovely meetings with, with elderly Christians, people who are at the very end of their life, and yet they look back over a long period of serving Jesus and they tell me it was worth it. Um, I've conducted a couple of funerals this year for Christians who made it all the way through into their 90s. And, and to hear the testimony of their life uh, and, and how satisfying it was to live for Jesus, well, that's what we should all be aiming at. We should be aiming to, to be amongst those who rest in their beds because they walk in their uprightness, confident that it shall be well for the righteous, uh, that we will one day enter into peace when we've walked this narrow road, the hard road, but the good road that Jesus calls us. And so it, 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 it takes patience and it takes persistence, it takes perseverance, it takes day by day relying on God and finding refuge in him alone. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 3 addresses the very same problem Habakkuk was writing to the people who Isaiah was looking ahead to. Habakkuk was writing to people who were wondering, well, when's God going to do something? And Habakkuk 2 verse 3 says, Still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God will do what God has said because he sent his servant to pay for the sins of all who will trust in him. And so having been paid for, we need to live for the servant patiently while we wait. And so the book of Hebrews, and I just want to close with this, in chapter 6, it gives us a wonderful uh, motto, really, for facing the future. Um, we're told in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, there's two things, unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for, for God to lie. And so we who have fled for refuge can have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Sure and steadfast, an anchor for the soul. So Jesus is the servant who paid for the sins of many by laying his life down. But Hebrews says more than that, he was raised from the dead and he's gone ahead of us in behind the curtain into the holy place. And so when we live in the resurrection life of the servant, when we day by day take refuge in God and seek to live according to his word, we can have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place. 
we can find refuge day by day in the God who will one day take us to be with him and help us to live at peace forever. Now the choice is between that or between between what Muggeridge in his address called the, um, the, the, the plastic wings of Playboy or psychedelic fancies. So which do you want? Which is the right way to go? The narrow road, the hard road, but the good road, or the road of self, sensual self-indulgence of idols that will one day just be blown away. Uh, take refuge in Yahweh, in God, in, in the one who has revealed himself through the servant son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words and we pray that you would help us to take them on board because we are surrounded by those same temptations as your ancient people. Uh, temptation to ease and pleasure and self-indulgence. Please help us instead to find our deepest joys in serving you, to, um, to walk alongside those who walk your way, um, not to be put off or dismayed by the mocking voices of our world, but instead help us to, to press on day by day taking refuge in you and your kingly son, our saviour, the servant, Lord Jesus. Uh, so we pray that you would help us to find refuge in you um, and that this refuge would be a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls uh, so that we don't drift off, uh, so that we, uh, we don't um, slip into sin uh, and, and don't uh, end up just deserting the faith altogether. Please keep us walking in your way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.